I'm Lane. And I'm Sharis. We are two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. From empathy to racism, sickness, time, and much more, we're here to talk about why our brains do the things they do and how to use our minds to become happier and healthier people through the power of knowing more. While it's easy to get lost in the science, we'll do our best to make these topics easy to digest so that you can better understand your brain and no longer be controlled by its functions. The more we understand about our brain, the more control we get over how we think and feel, and thus, the more we empower ourselves to live the lives we want and positively impact others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the Neuroscience of Empathy Part 2. Now, what I thought I would just cover really fast is the reason why this episode needed to be broken up into really two parts, because what we're hoping to cover here with empathy is starting off with what it is and why we're talking about it, what it really does for us, why we should care for that matter, and ultimately what we can do about it. First part covered the first point. We literally hit what is it. And so we're hoping to cover the rest of it in this second part. If you haven't heard it yet, we do suggest you go back and listen to Empathy Part 1. Just because it's full of a lot of incredible detail, you get to hear me just sitting in absolute shock for like the entire episode. But there's so much good information that we will most likely be touching back on. So to have that in your mind is going to be great. But we also know that this episode came out a month ago. So I'm going to give you just a really quick recap. So in Empathy Part 1, we tackled what is it. We started off just simply defining empathy as well is talking about empathy from the neurological development and how it appears in our lives from being babies, infants, all the way up until adulthood. We also then covered the evolutionary component of why we have empathy in the first place and really tied it in to its pairing with stress and how you really can't have one without the other. But we wanted to talk about specifically the need to live in groups and how we deal with that empathy and stress in those groups. And that's kind of where we ended things. And so what we want to first touch on, which I will pass off to Lane, is finishing discussing how the two really are intertwined and moving into the rest of part two. So to pick up where we left off, we were really talking about empathy and stress as almost two different sides to the same coin. And it's because they really do impact each other. We have a reduction in empathy when we are in a high stress space and empathy helps us reduce stress. Hmm. When we talk about stress, I think it's also important to talk about it the way we're talking about empathy. Why do we have this thing in our lives? So I want to give stress a little bit of time that we gave empathy, not the same amount, in terms of thinking about how we learn to even manage stress, how we learn to navigate this thing that comes into our life for good or for ill. So thinking about stress in that same sort of way of like, baby evolution, human evolution, individual evolution, we're talking about learning how to regulate stress because the whole system is determining is this damaging or is this okay? And so we're taking an activation and saying, what am I doing with this? And what do I need to do with this? So for babies, this starts off with like a parent-child interaction as simple as mom looks away, mom looks back to baby that a regulatory partner, right, is not paying attention to me. And then they come back to pay attention to me. But I had to deal with that millisecond of I don't have somebody looking after me. Mm. That in and of itself is a stress. I'm going to break it down that small because I think it's important to talk about stress regulation as almost in comparison to a muscle. It is a thing we need to build up 
to be able to handle large amounts of it. Little instances over and over and over again are important. The same way if, and I'm not a physical therapist or a personal trainer, but the way that we largely build up muscles, right, is we take a little tiny bit of weight and then we just keep adding to that. Like once our once our muscle can really handle that weight that we are handling and no longer takes us into muscle failure, we add weight, right? But we don't start off by picking up a 400 pound weight and lifting it over our head. <laughs> Specifically, we don't we don't start off with more weight than we can handle with that muscle because what we do instead is to damage that muscle. And then we have to deal with a whole lengthy amount of time of, of repairing and hoping it didn't cause the rest of our body otherwise harm. Stress has a very similar component because tiny small instances of stress that we can regulate around are how we actually learn. We need that activation to learn. So a common quote is change does not happen in a comfort space and comfort does not happen in a change space. Yes. Anything new has a little bit of activation and a little bit of stress. Not all stress is bad though, right? Yes. So a little bit of stress in a way that we can regulate it well is very, very good. And the buildup of those tiny pieces over and over and over again is what gives us that big, bulky, awesome muscle that gives us the capacity to manage those moderate stresses or those large stresses. So it is this frequent activation of tiny little pieces that is what gives us learning and healthy development. And on the flip side, if we give larger amounts specifically of like irregular stress, extreme stress, unexpected stress, that's what can do that muscle ripping and tearing and damage to the system. It's too much and we can't handle it because the body is all about not just what happens to me, but what I can make sense of, what I can handle. So when I was working with parents, specifically newer parents, I used to talk to them a lot about how we learn to regulate because that's not a thing we automatically come with at all. And as we learned from the empathy part one, that's partially because, right, a baby can't tell its own pain from yours, really. When we are first infants, we don't have any of that capacity. All we have is mom is upset, I am upset, dad is calm, I am calm, for example. Mm -hmm. So all we are doing is literally complete and utter regulation for another. That is that is the first thing a parent is doing, is doing all of the regulation work on their own because that's how babies start to live in this environment where they can start to realize, okay, somebody will take care of me. I matter. I'm important. And it's through that kind of buildup of experiences that baby then learns co-regulation. As we start to develop those empathy muscles that we talked about from empathy part one, then we're starting to get into a space where we can learn to co-regulate each other. And with time and the same workup of practice, we start to learn self-regulation. If we disrupt any of those, that's still a factor. We make it very difficult to learn if we disrupt any of that. And even as full-grown adults, you will still see instances where adults have to be regulated or co-regulate, where if you're in extreme amount of distress, you have a really great paramedic who's able to be like, hey, it's okay, I've got you, we'll get through this. You're, you're getting that sense of co-regulation. When you're having a really bad day and your partner grabs you in a hug and is like, it'll all be okay. We still need things like co-regulation. Self-regulation is hard. And comes with time and evolution and practice. And we need to be in a state where we have enough nurture to be able to really learn how to do that well. That makes so much sense. And I'm just imagining through all of that, a stressful mother or a stressful mother figure, we'll say. And that makes so much sense why it feels so stressful for them because not only are they having to regulate their child, they're also having to regulate themselves at the same time. 
Which we learned from part one, if your baby is dysregulated, it makes your you, the parent, more dysregulated because mirroring neurons are a thing. Yes. And so it's harder to, to move into that regulatory space. It is sometimes why I've talked to parents about, if you are dysregulated, please walk away from your child. It, clearly, abandoning a child also has damage, but don't harm your child further by taking out your stress on them. At least take a second, regulate yourself, do whatever that takes. You know, that's that great part. I'll tap somebody else in and be able to come back to a regulated space because a child cannot be more regulated than their parents because of mirroring neurons and development. The parent has to be more regulated than a child. And as we will eventually touch on the neuroscience of learning, we can't learn if we're not in a somewhat regulated space, much the same way, right, as we're talking about with empathy, we need that slight activation to be able to handle, to be able to learn, to be able to grow. Too much activation, the whole system shuts down. Absolutely. So that also takes us into we can't literally learn all of this nurturing and how to manage stress if we're in these constant amounts of threat because we're too much in an activation state that we start to learn that we have to always be in an alarm. So working with patients in trauma, which is what I've done for, for most of my career, it was really eye-opening when I was a newbie practitioner and realized there were lots of patients who could not handle calming techniques because the body was really dysregulated at the sense of feeling calm because it had learned for so many years that it had to be in a constant alert state because there was too much stress all the time. And if I if I calm down, it's like shutting the alarm off of my house when I'm planning on experiencing a break-in any moment. Wow. And the body panics. So we can't learn empathy if we're in this kind of constant state of alarm. Mm. This has, of course, been studied. One of the studies I'll reference is MJ Meanings was on a study of high-nurturing rat mothers to low-nurturing rat mothers. She was looking at, well, maybe certain mothers are just genetically predispositioned to be more nurturing. So she actually swapped babies, the babies from the low-nurturing mother to the high-nurturing mother, and had the high-nurturing mother raise the low-nurturing mother's babies. What she found from that study was that there was complete and under changes to the stress response system and into GABA, which is a neurochemical that helps us regulate. And so what she found is this is not actually genetic predisposition. Being around that high nurturing mother changed the baby's brains. And they found this so much so that the grandchildren, the grandchildren, grand rats, <laughs> grandchildren rats, <laughs> had those same GABA components and responses to stress system as the foster mother, not of their birth mother, or sorry, of the foster grandmother. Yeah. So two generations down, we were still seeing the effects of what it meant to be raised by a high nurturing parent versus a low nurturing parent. Wow, the power of nurture. Yes, which when we talk about trauma, something that was incredibly important was to learn about historical trauma, trauma that took place well before your life even came to be, which is something I think humans have a hard time wrapping their heads around until you don't learn the neurological factors of which you're carrying around hundreds of years of evolution in your system. You come into this planet knowing certain things because of evolution, as we're clearly talking about all the time. So if we're talking about evolutionary trauma, that's a, a real factor. Specifically, one of the ways that we can see it is a high nurturing mother increases the amount of GABA in our system two, three, four generations down. So this starts to get us into something that is really fascinating called epigenetics. Because we're consistently, right, our question is always, oh, well, is this just natural? Is this part of the DNA? DNA of this mother must be geared towards high nurturing, so the DNA of her children are geared towards high nurturing. And epigenetics is specifically that, right, that a high nurturing mother raising the foster babies of a low nurturing rat will create high nurturing children. So it's not just learning that behavior, but it's actually even more than that, right? It was affecting the GABA in the brain 
because epigenetics is actually about how you have essentially a series of possibilities that exist within your DNA. And it is certain types of experiences that will cause those parts of your DNA to manifest or to not. You are carrying around you multitudes of possibilities. Epigenetics is literally where nurture and nature collide. It is the coolest thing ever. The first thing I of course think of when you think of like the possibilities in your DNA is the language that we learn. All depending on what type of environment or culture that you are raised in often entails what language that you pick up but in those earlier years we literally have the ability to take on and learn any language and and like i said this is this is even going further to language we won't necessarily see when we pull your dna true and this we will So we're literally talking about things, your genetic likelihood of engaging in drugs or alcohol, your genetic likelihood of the way that you process food and calories, all coming from nurture impacting your DNA. Yeah, holy crap. (laughs) Epigenetics is wicked cool and I want to study more of it. Oh my gosh, yes. So literally one of the things we see within epigenetics is which potentials will be realized and which will stay on that double helix and stay completely hidden. We are carrying around possibilities. Like There is so much that is really fascinating that I get really excited about. So one of the things that we say, as, as I said, we see this manifested in terms of what is showing on your genetic potential is things like drugs. So for example, the study that we see that from is that rats in isolation get higher when given cocaine if they are lower licking rats. They're low nurturing and your body essentially needs that kind of soothing in other possibilities. You had mentioned this. Remind mm-hmm. remind me what you mean when you say uh, lower licking or higher licking. So if we're specifically talking about rats that were studied where mothers were not grooming as much for their pups and they weren't doing what's called arched back nursing, really actually engaging in eye contact while pups are feeding from them. Okay. It kind of gets summarized into lower licking rats. And we would notice that these particular lower licking rats are more likely to repeatedly engage in alcohol or cocaine, for example, when in isolation than rats from high nurturing mothers. We will see that genetic manifestation of how we engage with drugs or alcohol, how susceptible we are to it, how much more of it we need to get that kind of relief because our body is looking for something to manage that stress. And we don't have nurture to teach us the same level of stress, so we are going to find it somewhere. We also see this, one of the ways that we see epigenetics take place is teen pregnancy rates, because you'll actually see development manifesting faster. So children in high stress responses will develop primary and secondary sex characteristics and become more viable for teen pregnancy than ones in non-stressful experiences. One of the ways we see this is neighborhoods with the highest murder rates also have the highest rates in teen pregnancy. Another way that we see this is obesity because we're seeing, which makes sense if you're in utero and your genes are essentially getting information that the food is scarce and food might not be available to you. When you take in food, you're going to try to store as much of it as humanly possible. And if you don't live in a complete food scarcity environment, how that's going to look is is your body is going to hold on to weight very different. So this actually expanded into a much bigger study. 17,000 Californians in a Kaiser study were on a health plan. And one of the things that was realized within that is that childhood trauma is critically overlooked as a factor in obesity. We noticed that within it, that childhood trauma is also at major risk for every other major cause of death studied. So we're talking about heart attack, stroke, diabetes, asthma, cancers, it's all tied back to how much trauma somebody had experienced. And the way that this got discovered was Vincent 
Fafaletti, apologize if I mispronounced that, in San Diego, discovered that in in sort of trying to reduce obesity that he came up with a plan where people who were struggling with obesity were losing large amounts of weight and then dropping out. And he was super frustrated with this. And he was like, this is, this is successful. But all of these patients, it was like nearly 300 patients just wouldn't continue to engage in the program. And he wanted to know why. And so he started talking with these particular patients on their life experiences. And one of the things he found was absolutely extraordinarily high high amounts of prevalence of severe family dysfunction and specifically sexual abuse. He found that in the obese people within his study, 50% of them reported being sexually assaulted as children. This is 50% higher than the general population. It is also triple the rates for men. So virtually all of his subjects he discovered in this had studied, had experienced some form of lasting childhood trauma. And he actually presented these findings at a major academic obesity study in 1990. He presented it honestly talking about how he expected an interest in this discussion period. And instead he was attacked and dismissed. One audience member even stood up. I'm going to directly quote Perry and Zolovitz here. One audience member even stood up and claimed the patients were making up stories to cover up their further failed lives. Yeah, no fat phobia on our side, eh, huh? Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. If you've ever engaged in mental health services, you might have come across somebody asking you to fill out an ACE assessment. I've used these a lot in my practice. I'm sure you're familiar with them too. Mm-hmm. This is actually where the ACE study came from. This is how we have it. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, thinking just for our readers, will you give us a quick recap? of what you refer to as the ACE study? Um, ACE study is an adverse childhood experience, and it looks at a series of possible things that could have happened in your childhood that could lead to childhood trauma specifically. It came from what they were studying when they studied the people in this obese study. Thank you. That's where we learned about this from. That's that's literally how this came to be is Kaiser got some pushback and he was like, wait, I can do more research on this. I can look deeper into this. And so he did a ton of research on this and found over and over and over again that there were some strong similarities, which is where we come up with the questions that are asked on an ACE screener and a higher number of ACEs, each ACE being essentially that one of those negative experiences, one of those adverse childhood experiences, it counts as an ACE. The more ACEs you have, the higher risks you are at for for a lot of the major killers. Um, so four or more ACEs increases some cur- conditions, honestly, as dramatically as smoking raises the risk of lung cancer. So we know there's an absolute direct correlation. I'm gonna do some direct quoting here because this is a lot of numbers. The relationship between an ACE and an adult health problems are stronger than for many of the typical health reasons authorities are currently fighting, like smoking. Compared as having none, having four or more ACEs increases the risks of heart disease by 220%, stroke by 240%, diabetes by 160%, and chronic bronchitis by 90%. Having a score of six or more ACEs can lower life expectancy by more than two decades. Two decades. Yeah. Wow. And this literally all stems from the epigenetics that we have in our bodies as we are growing and the type of nurture that we are given. Is that right? So that means this literally all stems back to the epigenetics that we have in our bodies, literally when we're born and as we are growing, compared to the type of nurture that we are given and the amount of stress that we experience, literally all plays into all of those statistics that you just said. Well, and it's likely a combination thereof. So it is okay. epigenetics, but it's also generally that, that muscle, right? Have we developed a muscle in learning how to manage stress? And are we in a place where we also can manage stress? If you're in a traumatic environment, it is just generally harder to manage stress if you have somebody consistently like violent or aggressive or sexually assaulting you. So it's, it, it is a combination of epigenetics and the ability to 
move yourself away from that or to manage the amount of stress of a chronic environment. Because we know, right, that a stress response system affects every instance of physical and mental functioning. It's going to affect your heart rate. It speeds up your heart past the point where your heart should, on a, on a day-to-day basis, it'll change the full activation in your brain so that you are focusing more from that, right, that midbrain from episode one, as opposed to being able to engage your full prefrontal cortex. So you're living in a, in a state where you're only, where your prefrontal cortex is more turned off. It's going to affect your blood vessels because your body is saying you need to flee or fight. So I'm going to activate blood to all of your muscles all the time, except what that does is actually create damage because that's too much blood flowing through your body in a way that it shouldn't be on a regular basis. It's going to mess with your digestive tracts. I think we talked about in episode one, if you're running from a saber-toothed tiger, you do not have time to go to the bathroom. It's going to mess literally with every cell and every organ in your body. And so this is why when children are experiencing low levels of nurturing and high levels of, of trauma and high levels of traumatic experiences, we have both a combination of life and and genetics, epigenetics in this case, affecting our entire health. Trauma specifically without addressing it by ignoring it will still live in your body because it's changing your body system and your body has to learn that we're in a safe enough space that I can not be in constant fight or flight. We know that trauma is living in our body partially just in the way that it's, we know that there are nerve cells in multiple areas of our body. Somatic experiencing is a great field that's really looking into this of how we can hold trauma in our bodies. So this is where stories become really fascinating, like working with children with behavioral issues only to find out that they were trapped in a birth canal and couldn't move. I remember you telling me that story. I'm very excited to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Your body carries around so much of this, which makes sense because you carry around memories because we have implicit and explicit memories. So you are carrying around the memory of how to drive. How to drive is both an implicit and an explicit memory. You can tell somebody how to drive, but there are certain details within driving that you will forget to mention because it's a body memory, not a verbal memory. Trauma is living in our body, which makes sense because memories are living in our body all the time. If you got onto a bike, if you know how to ride a bike, you would just ride the bike. Trauma is the same way. Holy crap. Okay, we have to stop there because we're literally going to go down a rabbit hole and that is a whole nother podcast that will be coming soon. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's very true. So one of the things that we know in terms of trauma specifically is that we can't ignore it. It will still live there. When it's still living there, one of the things we find consistently is it's like living with an infection. It's not healthy. And we'll do things to self-medicate, to self-soothe, to try to alleviate this, to try to reduce the amount of pain that we're dealing with. So because of that, having four or more ACEs increases the odds, for example, of becoming a smoker by 220%, uh, of illegal drugs by 470%, of being an alcoholic by 740%, the chances of doing injecting drugs by a whopping 1,000%. Okay, those are huge numbers. Yes, actually. Holy crap. Direct quote again, people in the CDC doing this work told the author that there were these were numbers of an order of magnitude in which epidemiologists might see once in a career. The reason why all this matters and ties together, right? Low amounts of empathy reduces our ability to manage stress. Increased amount of stress increases the impact of which hard, heavy, awful experiences have on us which then decreases the amount of health we have as a society, as individuals. And we see things, teen pregnancy rate, obesity, chemical and drug usage coming from low levels of empathy, low levels of nurturing, a society that isn't supporting. Since this all has some major implications on the world that we are living in, let's talk about how we got here, why we're dealing with a society that is facing, you know, these epidemics like chemical and drug usage, teen pregnancy. A lot of the things that I've been hearing in the news for most of my 
my life as concerns that politicians, that leaders, that people on high levels of education are trying to figure out how do we address this, right? So uh, specifically, Perry and Zvalovitz will absolutely say this is completely rooted to empathy and here's the science behind this. We need to talk about how we got here. And they will argue the case that that is a couple of different points, one of which is a two-parent household. I will say Perry specifically has been arguing this point for easily 40 years. Okay, that is a point that I am so grateful I heard before the start of this podcast because I don't know how I would respond. But I can only assume that this is a big deal. This is a big thing to realize because like literally what, since like the 50s, we've only seen life as a two-person household in our society. Like that is the picture that is painted. It became the norm with two parents and 2.5 children and a white picket fence. Absolutely. So one of the reasons that it's believed that we moved into this direction is we studied great apes and chimpanzees, and we found that infants were exclusively nurtured by their mothers for like a full four to seven years and had just consistent contact. This is a research study done by Hardy, who argued this doesn't work in humans at all. Specifically, there are some great significant differences between great apes or chimpanzees than there are in humans. If you pass a baby chimp off to another parent figure, that could be the loss of that chimp's life because they don't respond the same way that we do to babies. They haven't evolved in the same way. And so there isn't that sort of shared nurturing. Literally, there's more threat. And because of that amount of threat, it's believed that that's why we started to move into these two-parent households, that it would be safer, better, the more American way. And reality is, as we talked about in Empathy Part 1, we need to think about where we came from because it doesn't pack how we live today. We grew up in a society of tribes. We grew up in a village. That's why we have empathy, because it's... It's how we learn to be the most flourishing mammal, the the most powerful mammal on the planet. We think in terms of groups and being in a group, and we are geared towards doing that. So when we're talking about child raising, we're very different than chimps and apes here because I can pass my baby off to you and know that you're going to take care of it because we're a part of the same group. We're a part of the same connection. That's not a threat to the baby's life. So throughout the course of our human history, up until the point where we significantly changed it to move into two-parent households, mothers were raising their babies in in communities of other mothers raising their babies. So you had a support system naturally built in. So one of the things we see from this is that moving to a two-parent household honestly goes against our nature. Bruce has talked about in the book, What Happened to You, about trauma, that children need four regulatory partners at any given time. You can't find four regulatory partners in a two-parent household. What you do find four regulatory partners is when you're living in a multi-generational household or when you're living in a community or a tribe. And specifically, we're still seeing this now. Mothers, of, Single mothers of low-income teen mothers, mothers of premature babies, we see consistent studies that those children do better on all measures, academic, emotional, physical, etc. if they have an extended family, if they have an extended group around them, because it makes a significant impact in their lives to have that co-op parenting structure. We historically, I'm going to quote Perry here again, we harshly judge mothers who don't spend all of their times with their infants and look at modern daycare as an evil aspect of society, but we're significantly ignoring the historical fact was that mothers had relatives and friends and family all viewing motherhood as something to connect in and connect to be a part of. If we move into a situation in an isolated suburban home with a father who's absent for most of the day, we're absolutely changing our own history. 
we're changing that that experience we're doing a complete and utter breakdown of that kind of extended family in this industrial and post-industrial society this is even made further in the 1950s we talk a lot about yeah you had a two-parent household but in the two-parent household, you had one income and one consistent parent. But now we've moved into a society where we can't afford that. It one is- income doesn't cover all of the needs that the family needs in the 21st century. Sometimes two incomes don't cover a family. So we're talking about not only just a two-parent household, but we're not even talking with a two-parent household where one parent has the ability to just parent. We're now talking about a two-parent household where both parents are trying to work and parent and do everything else, right? And and still do self-care so that they can be regulatory partners and try to be healthy and manage their own stress and, 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 and. <laughs> and, and, and. And they're so doing true. this honestly in a way that naturally breaks down empathy when we just move them into a two-parent household alone, let alone those other factors. Wow, that is just, it's just so true. Thinking of literally everything you just said and also imagining like some of, some of my friends who just had kids who are very excited parents and seeing them in the sort of stress that they're in. It's a whole nother thing. But just thinking about imagining the movies that I've seen or like books that I've read about those tribes and the colonies that had the supportive environment where a kid not only had a mother and a father, but had so many mother figures and father figures in their exactly. life and how much more rounded as a human that person can become. And like thinking on the flip side I can imagine one of the first instincts, especially as someone who sees kids in my future, thinking of, oh, I wouldn't want my kid to have so much time with with other adults because then they won't love me as much. The only way that they're going to love me is if they have the time with me. But the truth is what's best for the kid is to have multiple sources of love. Which, I mean, makes sense. Take on a basic level of how we function with or without sleep. It's as simple as that. (laughs) (laughs) So, So think in terms of, I don't know about you, but I will own that I am not as good in most of the things I do when I start to get really slow on sleep. I start to be, my my cognitive functioning gets impaired, my emotional regulation can get impaired. And we know that specifically within the first year, sleep is a sig- seriously impacted for parents. So as opposed to working in a, in an area where you might be living in a multi-generational household where you might have multiple regulatory partners, so you're sharing that sleep debt lack. You've got somebody who's, you know, getting up once as opposed to multiple times a night. Or maybe you have somebody who's getting up more times and then not having to go to work the next morning. So you can at least start to trade off between a group of people. You're sharing that sleep debt. As well as, you're absolutely right, one of the reasons that Bruce talks about for regulatory partners is imagine two parents and how they have to constantly be in this state of nurturing to be able to build these muscles for child, because again, child cannot be more regulated than their parent, and you're managing low levels of sleep and high levels of stress at work and taxes and, and bills and the fear that you won't be able to feed your children, and now you're stressed out, what impact does that have on your child? Because you have two regulatory partners. Now, if I expand that to four, if I'm frustrated, I can do more of that tap out. I can walk away. I don't have to lash out at my child. I can have somebody be there with my child while I come back and re-regulate and say, hey, I was really upset with you that you broke that thing that's very important to 
to me, I love you more than that thing that you broke. Let's talk about that, right? You're into, remember that stress decreases our ability to have access to our prefrontal cortex to be able to think about long-term ramifications and makes it so that we're living in a fight or flight sense. You're going to be more activated when you're working with children if you're in a fight or flight sense. (laughs) So you have to be able to move back into that prefrontal cortex area where you've got the ability to say, I love my child. My child is the most important thing in my world. Let's figure out how to do this together. So yes, two-parent households are significant. We absolutely know extended family, extended social networks, it has great benefits and it has great benefits to single parents, but also to two-parent households. Mm. This isn't just talking about single parents, although clearly that's going to make things exceptionally hard as well. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But actually, so does a two-parent household. Because again, we need at least about four regulatory partners. So it, it is a significant impact to when we've moved into the normalcy of that. Now most of us just are, oh, of course I would only have a two-parent household. That, that feels comfortable to me. That feels, why would I want my parents living with me, right? But we have to realize what that has done to us in a society in the last 70 years. One of the things that we also see within low levels of parental engagement with only two-parent households and or with two-parent households where both parents are working all the time or one parent who's also trying to work all the time is we see a decrease in language. Language is actually really important to things like empathy and emotional regulation. One of the ways that we notice this as somebody who's been lucky enough to be able to work in the deaf community is Hearing children, of course, we're all really familiar with the terrible twos. We have that that very explosive tantrum area, right? One of the ways that we know that that exists is the left lobe develops slower than your right lobe. Your right lobe is where you're often feeling right the things you're feeling things, <laughs> <laughs> feeling independence, the way that I respond to the world. And your left lobe is where language is. And so a two-year-old has all of these essentially kind of thoughts, feelings, emotions that are starting to develop on that right lobe and no way to express them. And that's what comes up with this explosive behavior. Whereas a deaf child, because sign language is more located in your right lobe, has access to language as early as nine months. So a deaf child is more able to, or a child speaking sign language, I should say, is more able to communicate their needs and wants. And we notice a decrease in behavior. So we know that language and the ability to use language to regulate ourselves, to explain our needs and wants really impact emotional regulation. And with the decrease of language in a household where there may only be two parents that may be working all the time, we've noticed it starts to decrease the amount of language that children are getting access to, which decreases the amount of language that they have. So Betty Hart and Todd Reesley did a study looking on the verbal interactions in parental homes, specifically looking at what they called utterances. Some form of verbal communication was an utterance. On every, on an average of every day, poor children had about 178 utterances, while children in wealthy families had 487 utterances in that same day. Whoa. Yes. Additionally, to make this even more complicated, they kept seeing in poor families, a lot of those utterances were specifically going more towards admonishments than praise. So there was a lot more negative things. You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Poverty increases the amount of stress that we're having, right? We're not in that space of nurturing. So we're dealing with negative utterances to tie this kind of all together. Yep. Whereas in professional homes, these children were getting six words of praise for every one don't do that. So what we saw was by the time they hit preschool, families that were doing low levels of utterances, usually specifically children in poverty, had 525 words as opposed to 1100 that's literally like a double over double yeah 
So then when you tie that together, knowing that the more vocab you have, the more vocab you have access to, the more emotional regulation you have. We're talking about low levels of language, increasing that that level of stress and decreasing that level of nurturing because verbal nurturing also exists. So interesting. So low levels of language and low access to language is also negatively impacting our ability to do empathy. Also, of course, as we're going to mention over and over again, anything in regards to stress brain change, brain decisions under brain change. We don't have that long-term consequence piece. We're in a highly threatening situation, makes it harder to think clearly, harder to be kind, which Perry specifically breaks down to if we want a kinder, more caring society, people need to be in experiences and places where they feel safe. We need to be in a situation where we can do and can learn empathy if we want to be able to be emotionally regulated and healthy and empathetic and all the things that come from a flourishing society. Thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that feeling of safety is what literally level two, mm-hmm. only above food, water, shelter, yeah. which shelter is still kind of considered safety in that same way. But yes. That literally makes so much sense. Also in talking about why we have a less or why we've had negative impacts to empathy, why we're seeing things like obesity, cancer, drugs and alcohol, teen pregnancy, we are also going to look at things like empathy burnout. Researchers claim that observations that over empathy can sometimes backfire. The more distressed someone is, the more distressed we get up unto a point where our own distress becomes so high that we start to turn inward and start to help ourselves as opposed to helping others. So if I'm working with you and you're in a high level of distress and pain, but I'm doing far more to help alleviate your distress and pain than you are, I will have empathy and, and passion towards that up until a point where I can't. And I have to turn inwards and I have to take care of myself. Yes. It's almost like literally their stress is becoming your own stress and you're recognizing that and you have to stop and take care of yourself first before you can help them any further. Yes. Which isn't always necessarily a bad thing, right? Where when I'm working with parents, I always talk about your own self-care will impact the care that you have for your child and you can pour from an empty cup. It's why when you're on a plane, they always tell you, you have to put on your own mask before you put on the air oxygen mask for a child because you can't help your child if you're dead. So empathy burnout does exist and it exists because it's also about, we, we do have to take care of ourselves. However, without the realization that this exists, this can backfire on us. So one thing that was super important to me that I started to realize when I was uh, really practicing all the time, I had a very high caseload and I was specifically focusing and specializing in trauma in the worst moments that we as humans ever do to each other and, and with children and with infants specifically. I really learned that to do that work, I had to up my own amount of self-care. I had to up my community care. I had to make sure that I was healthily turning inwards so that my empathy still was able to be replenished and I wasn't working from a state of low empathy or empathy burnout. Yes. I was really lucky and I happened to come across that study about right as I started to do my practice and I had noticed instances. For example, I used to go to the state to do case consultation on infant mental health and a highly traumatic case that we were discussing about. I started to notice the professionals, the trained therapeutic professionals around me would start to like look on their phones or look through their notes and they were physically all getting dysregulated and turning inwards to regulate themselves. Wild. Because if you're unaware of it or that it's normal or that it's natural, you don't know how to counteract it. And that's a significant factor. We see this specifically in doctors or nurses 
one of the reasons that we have empathy burnout, one of the reasons that we will recoil in a certain part is because it is also a part of our evolution to only have so much empathy. It does make sense for us to instinctively recoil from blood and gore, A, mirroring neurons, but B, we have that natural horror and recall because human evolution, we needed to learn to stay away from infected or wounded individuals to reduce contagion. We can absolutely clearly overcome these initial reactions and help the sick or injured, but the repeated amount of exposure to blood to gore, to injury, will decrease that amount of physiological and emotional reactions. So specifically for a doctor, that's good-ish because you can't help somebody if you are so wrapped up in the person on my operating table is in clearly huge amounts of pain and I have to cut into them, right? If I'm literally cutting into them and my own abdomen is hurting, like I can't focus on my patient and I can't be any good to them. But on the flip side of this, we notice that doctors, police, rescue workers are kind of, it's almost a societal trope that they're insensitive, that they don't have that kind of bedside manner. Mm. Because if you don't work on purpose to work against this, you will become numb. And again, this is another study where we learned that medical students found that young doctors became less sympathetic over the course of the training period. Even in specialties like pediatrics or psychiatry, where there's generally a higher level of empathy, after three years of med school, it would decrease to what we would call more normal levels. We saw decreases all across the board, regardless of all other factors, because you're getting that kind of constant exposure. If you're unaware, if you're med school, for example, isn't helping to figure out how to build up your own empathy, you will start to numb out and have a natural less amount of daily empathy to give. Wow. Hence doctors with bad bedside manners. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. But it also makes sense that that would be why nurses and doctors aren't allowed to operate on their family members, because the kind of level of empathy that you have for the people that you love the most is almost something that you can't lower. And could have sense. implications. Would make sense. Very interesting. And on the flip side, one of the things that we are, are learning about improving our medical field, I'm going to walk carefully here because I'm, I'm not specialized in this and I've not researched this enough. I've only caught pieces of it. But one of the things we're realizing is lower amounts of interaction with a patient, that lower bedside manner is absolutely dramatically changing the kind of care that we provide to a very negative amount. So specifically, one of the things that I was talking with somebody else in the medical field about is med schools are starting to move away from the hard science. Usually that was a prerequisite is you needed a bachelor's degree and a hard science to get into med school and are starting to actually move towards more of the humanities fields. And it's because a hard science we can teach you but we can't teach you how to do this kind of empathy, connection, relational pieces that we are finding has a significant impact to medical care. That is huge. That is literally the power that we need then is that these these people in these services need to learn to have the empathy that's necessary for the care that we deserve, but also to be able to protect themselves. And then how crucial and critical is it to healthcare that we give doctors and nurses time to take care of themselves, that we give them time to be able to fill that cup because otherwise they're going to have a natural decrease to empathy and not do as good and care because they're not capable. You can't pour from an empty cup, right? It's yes. just you can't give somebody empathy where you don't have the ability to because of the natural results of burnout. So we absolutely need to look at, as we are saying, two years into a pandemic with doctors and nurses who have been working insane amount of hours and going through some of the hardest things, watching people that they're caring for die over and over again, unable to be close to their loved ones and go in to work the next day and do all over again. What are we doing to our medical field if we are not not giving them. And in the flip side, we're struggling with the ability of not having enough doctors and nurses to cover even with doctors and nurses working all, all over time. 
It's a spiral. There are no good answers. There are some good points. We need to put resources and value into our medical care to give them the time to be able to provide the care that they need for us to have good medical care. We have to invest to be able to get back. So yes, that's true for doctors and nurses, but that consistent, real continuous exposure to violence, to trauma, to gore has a numbing effect to all of us. One of the ways that we are getting exposure to violence, gore, harm is through television, video games, and movies. Specifically, a dramatic increase in the last 70 years. Because when we first see it, right, when we first see it, we still have empathy, we still have connection. The more we see it, the more it numbs us out. We know through multiple studies that screen time does not have positive effects for children. Many years ago, they did a thing called Einstein Babies, which was supposed to do exactly right that, help you. All the deficits of not being the perfect quote-unquote parent would help your baby become the next Einstein, right? And what they actually saw was if your baby watched this Einstein baby video, you saw a natural measurable delay for one hour of viewing. Because that television wasn't enough to replace the natural utterances that a child actually needed access to one hour of television. So you're literally saying that the first thing you think of, like when you say video games is, yeah, those gory shooting games that a lot of lots of parents are worried about and makes sense now. But gory television, gory movies. But you're literally talking about a, a childhood TV show, literally Einstein babies can reduce the amount of language we have access to, which we as we've discussed has the lowering amount of how much regulation, emotional regulation we have capacity to engage in. I'm shook. So <laughs> that's crazy. It's significant enough that the people who created Einstein babies had to face a lawsuit because of it. Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. Additional studies, right? Average American children between the ages of two to four found before these children could complete fifth grade, they'd witnessed 8,000 on-screen murders and more than 100,000 acts of violence. There is more research, I will say, on violent television than violent video games. Video games, of course, have not been around more than what about 30 40 years and they've dramatically changed in 30 40 years it'd be one way different to do a study on something like pong than it would be to do something on grand theft auto but we know that very very violent things very visually violent things that we know look like humans can start to numb us out so some of the research on violent television showed uh, was a study on seven to nine year olds watching either violent or non-violent films and then they played indoor hockey and there were researchers who were watching the indoor hockey who had no idea if the child had seen violent or unviolent uh, images. But what they saw was that they were measuring the amount of aggression acts during the game, specifically looking for those moves that are banned in hockey, pushing, shoving, sticking. And what they absolutely found going back was that the children who had access to violence were absolutely participating in violence, which was to counteract the argument of, well, children who are interested in violence will seek violence. Sure, but it is about exposure because I'm seeing it so much that I start to numb out to it, specifically when I'm looking at it through the aspect of a screen because it stops being a human. I stop connecting. I stop celebrating their accomplishments. I stop mourning their losses. I just, it, I numb out to what that looks like, right? Yes. It's like almost a, a literal separation mm-hmm. when there's a screen in between you. And what we see then is that because it's numbing me out, I have less empathy for the person that I'm harming then because yes. I've seen it so many times and we have this natural buildup of empathy burnout. So another study, 2003, on 329 children, which they actually followed these children for 15 years, they found that 11% of men who watched violent television in junior high had been convicted of a crime. Absolutely increased. It was twice as likely for domestic assault. And 
that was for males, for females, they were four times more likely to have been physically violent with another adult if they'd watched an increase of violence. Every additional year that a child is exposed to a television before 15 years of age, there's a 4% increase in the number of arrests of crimes, about 50% of property crime. Oh my gosh. And 25% in violent crime. Holy crap. Literally, mm-hmm. the brain-blown moment of this, I'm literally experiencing it right now. It's not the fact that these the people who participate in watching the TV or playing the video games are going to consciously choose to do those same acts. It's that they're going to subconsciously do it. Because they're numb to it. Specifically, it's important to talk about this in relation to children because we're talking about empathy as we discussed in Empathy Episode 1, developing over time. So it's all about right stimuli at the right time so we learn how to respond to things like stress, so we learn how to connect to others. All of this is in a developing mind. Yes. So it does have more impact. And I realize this is an unpopular statement in the same instance. And I realize there that, you know, we have sort of tried to over control the amount of this. I remember seeing, you know, in the 90s, parental authority measures on certain types of music and music being blamed for the Columbine shooting. So I, I think it's really important that we talk about this in an awareness of knowing that this has impact and knowing that it is also about what we can do about it, right? An instance of watching a violent movie in a household where parent and child talk about that and why that could be harmful and why that could cause damage is going to have a, a, a base difference than a child who gets exposed to that violence and then doesn't know what to do with it. Yes. As a trauma therapist, I have spent hours in play therapy working with children who have an overexposure to violent television, movies, and video games and will spin and start to replay all of that in my play therapy room because they don't have uh, homes that are helping them make sense of it and they're starting to get behavioral issues because they don't know what to do with these images and they don't know what to do with what this means for, for them and how to make sense of it. It's literally understanding why or understanding like what's going on inside of us when this happens and the outlets that we need to process it. So much of life is not about just what happens to you, but also how you make sense of it. Brilliant. So like we know from secure attachment, for example, that uh, somebody can have secure attachment and some problems in their childhood. But the question is, could they make sense of it? Were they given a story? Were they given a place where this was all interconnected? Or were they just left to spin and to be isolated? So I, I want to say yes and. So it's also a yes and for video games. Video games, as I mentioned, are more complex because it's different to study Pong than it is to study Grand Theft Auto. There's become so much more complex that the question is, are you in a video game where you're celebrating, where you're creating empathy with that character, where you're celebrating their wins, where you're mourning their losses, where you feel like you are connected to it? Or is it desensitizing you? And I will say there are video games that can desensitize. That is the point that is important to make is that studies have found with people who are, are less emotionally effective after seeing violence are more likely to be violent themselves. So they're more likely to take out aggression while in that role, depending on the game, that desensitization and numbing, deadening effects has strong impact to the point where the military is using video games on potential soldiers because they want to numb those soldiers out to the idea of taking somebody else's life. One of the things we found in the course of studying military violence is there were people who would engage in in battle who would go into war, into conflict, and not shoot. They would just stand there. They actually found a higher number than they were expecting. And so the military, of course, then needs to work to actively reduce that so their side has more of a chance of winning. Mm. And they are one of the tools that they are using is is video games because killing at a distance, killing when you're not, I'm not killing a human, killing somebody I can't connect to is much easier. 
It's about what reduces or increases our ability to connect with one another when we're talking about things like impacting our overall societal experiences of empathy. So let's get to almost our second to last point, which is why do we care? <laughs> like, why does all of this matter? <laughs> why have we talked about this for like two hours? <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of talked a little bit about it in terms of we know that this impacts our stress response system, which impacts our health, which impacts the health of our society. We know with empathy, we live longer, we are happier, and we are a more productive society. Artistically, wealth-wise, we just have a happier, healthier, better society with empathy. We've seen this Around 2010, Iceland was listed as one of the top five countries in the world on virtually all measures of happiness and health. And it's because they had low inequality. They had high empathy. They were allowing to be able to a strong, flourishing society because they had low inequality and high empathy. They were consistently ranked as near or best in the world in relation to life and happiness. It was the number one country in the UN on distribution of health, income, and educational levels. And it was number one on a global peace index. So we saw violent crime and incarceration rates completely dropped. So we see examples of countries that have high levels of empathy and how much they're flourishing, not only as a society in terms of the happiness and health of their population, but also in their economy. Empathy really actually does impact the economy. And this was hard for me to wrap my head around when I was doing research on this. I found a little brain blown because I was not expecting that. But thinking about it, it makes sense. Because our economy is all about, do I trust you enough to give you money? Or if I don't, then I don't buy things. <laughs> Thinking about empathy, right, in terms of economy makes sense. I'm, say, I am Cheris and I'm an entrepreneur. I need to go buy my own technological equipment to be able to work in a today's world that requires it. Yeah. So I'm going to go to the store. I need to trust the salesperson that that individual knows enough about this particular type of technology that they're going to sell me the right thing. I need to trust the company enough to know that this is hopefully going to be a lasting product and I'm not going to be throwing away my money. I need to trust that there's, you know, some way to help out if something does break. Without that, I don't want to buy a laptop from you, for example. Thinking yes. about renting a car is even bigger. I need to trust somebody enough to say that they're going to bring back this $20,000 vehicle. Renting an Airbnb? I need to trust you enough to not destroy my home. All of this is tied into, without trust, our economy is stagnant. Economy is all about how willing and able its citizens are to trust our government and people who are not family or friends, who we have no reason to trust. Without empathy, there can be no trust because we don't believe that people will act in a way that will honor that commitment. So trust and what has been shown to research has been coined a term called social capital. And it's about how much we can trust one another and move within those contexts. So social capital being about can I trust people who are strangers? Wow, I know we're gonna do our very best on this podcast to not touch into personal opinionated things, especially when it comes to the nose, the the politics, the religion. But hearing you say all of that about trusting the leaders in your society, like for the United States, trusting the president, trusting our government, it makes a lot of sense why we're so easily divided. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, you know, in the last six years when we've had a major change from one political party that half the country didn't trust to another political party that half the country doesn't trust, how divided we've become to the point where we are stopping another party's progress simply because the other party put it forward. And the things that we have agreed upon and worked on for years across party lines are stalling. 
It's so empathy can have an impact in what we call bonding social capital versus bridging social capital. So bonding is about family, friends, people, I love and trust, and bridging social capital um, refers to connections outside of those boundaries and the impact this is having on our bridging social capital. Wild. It's not possible to have bridging social capital without starting in bonding social capital as well. So if we impact your friends, family, your ability to regulate with your parent, um, your ability to come up in a nurturing environment, you don't have the ability to do bridging social capital. So a child's development impacts the economy. Wow, full circle. When we have high social capital in a society, not only do we have children who can trust, therefore it means we have less crime, less corruption, higher life satisfaction. If we have low social capital, we have poverty, we have underdevelopment. If you can't trust others, you can't do business. If your transaction is always on the aim to only benefit yourself or a few others, you wind up with corruption. You wind up in a competitive global state that is starting to break down because a society's lack of trust essentially taxes every transaction possible. When we have low social capital, we don't trust one another to do things. We start talking about, to quote Reagan, Reagan started to coin a term about welfare mothers stealing your paycheck. What that is, is it's an example of low social capital because it's, I don't trust another individual to not need a social program, to not need it to survive. I, I expect, and I start giving ver- language to you're, you're taking advantage, you're taking money away from me. I start trusting individuals in my society less. When we have that last lack of trust, we start doing things like putting in more measures because we can become fearful of people using and abusing social programs. And what we actually do when we do that is so many times we have seen study after study after study that those barriers that we're putting into place to make sure that we can quote unquote trust people cost so much more than the quote unquote abuse of the system. We end up spending so much more money to make sure that nobody is abusing the system that we actually cost ourselves more than just having a couple people abuse the system. Because it is about low social capital. We don't have people abusing a system if there is high social capital because clearly I want to do well so that you can do well. I don't want to abuse a system because I'm not in it for my own gain. So we all do better when we have the ability to have high levels of trust. It it is also about low levels of trust will turn situations where we're talking about high level of governmental need, high level of legal need to make sure that everything is is set up in just a certain way. We're talking about increasing the amount of transactions it takes to get anything done. So businesses building a home takes so much bureaucratic time and energy and cost because there's low social trust. So it really will, over time, absolutely impact our economy. This is why social capital matters, why we need it to our for our future, why we need to talk about how trust is regulated in the brain. Because economic inequality, inequality reduces empathy, drives greater inequality, which drives lower social capital. We know, for example, also that that parent-child interaction, that oxytocin that we talked about, high nurturing mothers from prairie voles to mountain voles, increasing the amount of natural oxytocin that we have also impacts the economy. So there are studies done, University of Zurich and the Center for Neuroeconomics, Claremont, did a, did studies on this where people were given the opportunity to possibly quadruple their money if they shared it with a stranger. But it came with risk of losing all of that money if the tr- stranger chose to run away. And what they did is they gave an oxytocin nasal spray to test subjects. The test subjects who had had oxytocin nasal spray, twice as many invested in the maximum versus the placebo. An additional study, it, it made people naturally more generous to get this oxytocin na- nasal spray. So a subject was given $10 to split with a person that they didn't know, and the other person could either accept or reject that split. And if I was 
given oxytocin, I would be 80% more likely to be much more generous than a person who didn't get that oxytocin. Um, we've also found that a person given oxytocin was much more likely to forgive somebody if somebody betrayed their trust. So say I participated in that study, I was given oxytocin, I'm therefore much more likely to give you money and you ran away with it. I was much more likely to forgive you if I had gotten that oxytocin because I understand that maybe you were in a position where you needed it more than me. I start to empathize with you. I start to connect with you and I don't hold as much ill will to you because we're connecting as humans and realizing how your experience could be very similar to my experience. That's that's what oxytocin can help us do. So that chemistry of bonding affects our our economy. Oh my gosh, I want more oxytocin. <laughs> I want it. <laughs> then spend more time being connected to the people you care about. Spend more time in physical touch. Literally, s snuggle more. Yes. <laughs> oh, license to snuggle. I mean, they've done studies on on literally the amount of physical touch that we need on a daily basis just to be regulating. Well, the more you get, the more you have to give, the more oxytocin you get from it, right? So absolutely, the, the ability to be in connection, even what you and I are doing right now and the fact that we're looking at each other is an increase to oxytocin because I have an understanding of where you are and what you need and vice versa because we're spending time with one another and this increases oxytocin. So now imagine what the last two years has done to us. Yeah. And what it could do to our economy. Or what it in a way has done, done to, to our economy. economy. And I will say the oxytocin studies also through traditional economics for a loop, they absolutely predicted directly different results. So uh, economists will tell you that if you give a person $10 and you tell them they can keep some of it, right, that study, if I give part of it away, um, it would make the most sense to keep nine and to give one. However, most people, if you give them a dollar and they know that you have $9, they'll reject that dollar because there's more going on for humans, right? We see that as an insult. We see that as harm. And economists will tell you the opposite. They'll tell you that any money is better than none, but this is not how people work. One of the things that we've learned very early on as young as small children is that it's not fair. And yeah. we have a response to that because it's clearly, if you keep nine and you give me a dollar, you're probably not empathizing with me. I know that that's not fair. It breaks down that empathy connection. That is, there were multiple pieces within the study that economists predicted the exact opposite because we have to understand that humans are more complex than numbers. Oh, mic drop right there. <laughs> so everything we've kind of studied and talked about, all the studies we've referenced are completely coming back to how much this affects development and then how much it affects the health, the wealth, the well-being of our society. This makes sense if we think about how interdependent we all are. And once we make peace with that and understand how we evolved as humans, the need for connection, a lot more of our day-to-day -day actions start to make more sense. We need to think about as we move forward, holding our own human evolution and what is on a neurological biological component what kind of life do we want to live what kind of world do we want to create and what do we want to think about in regards to what erodes our empathy or what builds it i will give a piece of hope here which is one of the things that we do know is that we've been improving as a society regardless yes we've talked about a decrease in empathy, and that was one of the reasons that people are really bringing this into research. But if you think about also our human history, we used to do torture for fun. We used to absolutely normalize torture. It was normalized by, by government, by religion, by society. Regardless of, of all things that we have talked about in concern, we have consistently improved. One of the things that gives me hope is the belief that progress is inevitable. We get there slowly over time. And that gives me hope. 
I like that a lot. So if we want to talk about this being important, we then also need to talk about how do we improve it if that's what we want to do. We talked about a lot of things that damage it, but we also need to talk about what increases. One of the specific things we need to think about is kindness. We need to think about the ability to be empathetic with one another. Kindness nowadays is only often normalized between a parent and a child, between loved ones, between people that we care about. It is not uncommon for kindness to be sort of thought of as like the vegetable of human interaction. We know that it's good for us, but we don't believe anybody actually enjoys it or get benefit from it. Oh, that's a great metaphor. I'm going to remember that. It is the thing you have to do, not the thing you want to do. And sometimes even even worse, it can be thought of as kindness is for the weak and selfishness is for the strong. However, what we actually know when we talked about in Empathy Part 1 is when we are kind to others, we actually gain more benefit from it sometimes than the people who we were kind towards. We gain a stronger personal benefit towards being kind to others than the people we are being kind for. So one of the things that's super important is that there is pleasure from kindness. There is health from kindness. There is enjoyment from kindness. There is more ability to regulate your own personal distress, your own personal struggles by being kind to others. Mm -hmm. And we need to flip that narrative. I love that. That makes me think of the Friends episode where Phoebe is trying to find a selfless good deed and doing things for other people and trying to make it not feel selfish. But what you're saying here is that's the magic of kindness is that doing good for others gets to feel really good for you too. Absolutely. This is the thing I used to struggle with consistently in like the last decade because I would have friends who were like, oh my God, you're, you're a therapist. You're a therapist with children and trauma. Absolutely. Just this, oh, that's, you know, that's such a, you're so self-sacrificing. You're such a good person. And I was like, okay, but please understand that this brings me so much more joy than anything else I've ever done in my life. That the amount of hope that I see, the amount of healing I've contributed to, the amount of, of patients who come into my lives and left in the best sense. And I have so much belief and and knowledge of what their future entails and how much I carry them with me that being a therapist for me is sometimes an incredibly selfish act because I am given the gift of being able to be a part of somebody else's world of them allowing uh, themselves to open up to me to trust me to work with me to connect with me that's a gift for them to do that I am being invited into their life in a way that is an absolute requirement of trust and I'm hopefully in all cases able to make it so that when they leave they're leaving far better than they were when they came they're leaving in a place of a life that they wanted to be because they had somebody to walk with them on that journey so yes there is no selfless act because we benefit so much from this on a personal, professional, on a health basis. We gain so much from being good to one another, which is a counter narrative to the belief that Lawrence will say, which is kinder only kind because they haven't got anything else. No, the kind are kind because they're in a space where they don't have to be in a stress experience, where I don't have to live only for this moment, where I don't have to be in fight or flight and I can give to others and I can reap the benefits of what it means to give to others. Oh, let's do it. Let's be selfish. Let's do it. <laughs>
And it's important because pseudo-psychologist Jonathan Haidt will talk about having strong relationships extends the immune system, extends life more than quitting smoking, speeds recovery from surgery, reduces risk of depression, anxiety. The giving support of caring for others is more beneficial than receiving help. That was his study. The research on happiness points to the greatest sorts of joy is in relationships. Joy of giving goes to the gift giver. And this is absolutely, like I said, it, we need to switch that narrative because it's believed as like this white lie, something self we, we do to feel better um, so that we eat the veggies of kindness instead of the sweet possessiveness of power. I'm directly quoting there. We need to flip that narrative that power will honestly often leave you in a state of stress, will leave you in a state of, of fight or flight and empathy does not because we, how we evolved in groups, I know that I have somebody else to watch my back. So we need to think about how we increase empathy on a societal level because all of this matters. And because we went back to not only the evolution of groups, but the evolution of parent to child. Where did we learn this from? It came from the very beginning of our own life. It came from infancy. It came from before infancy because what happens in the womb, we carry with us for the rest of our lives. We know that. Siegel did a really cool study that I reference a lot because it's fun, where he sang not well-known um, traditional dramatic folk song to his children when they were still in utero. And he would bring over other doctors and medical professionals and show them. He was like, if I, I'm going to sing three songs, they're going to turn it this one. And every single one of his children turned it that song. At, we're talking days old. What we have experienced in, in, in the womb, we do carry with us. So we need to talk about if we want a more empathetic world to reduce the amount of stress that a mother is dealing with when they're carrying that child. To create a more caring citizen, we have to be more supportive of mothers and children's and families. And I am so conscious knowing that I have a voice that people immediately read as female. So they're going to be like, oh, of course you care about mothers and babies and children. Sure, I also care about our economy. And I'm telling you scientifically that the two are intertwined. We need to think about all the neurological structures that increase empathy, that help us to manage stress about before we even leave the womb. We need to make sure that that pregnant women are nurtured, are, are nourished, are surrounded by people who love and care for them. Because being pregnant is hard and giving birth is hard and caring for a baby that is way more dependent on you than any other mammal for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years is so much more harder than we give anybody credit for. It is hard to raise babies. And if we don't, if we have a stressed out mother, we have a mother who can't nurture. We have a child who can't learn nurture. We have a child who's less empathetic. We have major impacts to our society. We need to know that there is scientific knowledge that we cannot spoil a child. We need to get rid of the narrative that, that too much nurturing will spoil your child. Nope. <laughs> Natural amounts of stress are important, sure, but remember that stress has to happen like you're lifting a weight, small amounts, over and over and over again, not large amounts. So we need to be consistent and nurturing and engaging with children so that we have the ability to develop that stress muscle so that we can handle the hard things in life well and we don't lash out into others. So we decrease the amount of violence we see. Weirdly enough, one of the things that studies are showing is we need to read more to children. We know that reading increases language and language increases our ability to manage stress and regulate stress. We know that reading increases empathy because we are connecting to somebody else's story. We are we are absolutely holding them in our, our hearts as we are celebrating their accomplishments. We're mourning their losses. So reading to children is what actually helps specifically in that kind of nurturing environment 
teach children to enjoy the aspect of reading. Because when you read to a small child, they learn that, that it has touch, right? Like you often snuggle in close so you can look at the pictures. You're using a more nurturing tone. You're engaging in eye contact. It's playful. It's pleasant. From doing that, we create lifelong learners. We create individuals who are going to keep reading and thus keep increasing their empathy. The flip side of that, if you don't read to children and children first experience this in schools, they don't have the warmth contact. They don't have the playfulness. They don't have the eye contact. They don't have the ability to get up and move around. You create somebody who hates reading. And so therefore, we're not getting as much of that language. We're not getting much of that regulation. We're not getting as much uh, of that regulation. We're also not getting the ability to do what's really important in empathy, which is practice perspective taking. So it's also important that we teach perspective taking, especially when we're talking about exposure to television, movies, and video games, the ability to do increased amount of perspective taking, watching something and saying, what do you, what does he think this person is thinking, feeling? How do you know? What are they going through? What is the other person going through? I've done that before in sessions where I've actually brought in a clip of something that I know the child is interested in and we turn off the volume and then it's, well, what happened in this, this episode? How do you know? What did you learn from facial expressions? What did you learn from body language? This is perspective taking. This is teaching empathy. Yes. And it's, God, I, it, I do it because I'm helping children learn emotional regulation and connection. A fun one to end on for increasing empathy in our society is singing and drumming and dancing. So a thing that we know about life is that all life has rhythm. Our, our breath, our heart rate, our hormone cycle, so much of our life is on a natural rhythm. And we also know uh, neurologically that in our inner ear, we have fluid. We have a canal that holds um, fluid. This is what gives us the ability to do balance. It helps our brain know which direction we are facing in the world, if we're upside down, if we're laying down. One of the things we also know is when we rock slowly back and forth, that fluid moves in a way that we find naturally soothing which is why you rock a baby to sleep. So that rhythmic pattern can absolutely help our stress response. Life has this natural rhythm and we can adjust it accordingly. Because of this, all cultures and societies have developed some some measure of dance, some sort of pattern that's repetitive and rhythmic. All cultures have some aspect of singing, right? And that instrument has so much of an impact to combine us and join us together. This gets super cool We've actually also seen studies where singing and playing an instrument can replicate the relief one experiences when using alcohol or drugs, specifically actually if it's also connected to culture. So patients who suffered maltreatment that affected their, their nonverbal regions of their brain, some of their conscious brain regions, their stress response system, would find with these activities were combined with music and movement that it could be powerfully restorative that it could do so much healing. It was helping them relieve tension and then helping them to move away from drinking by using something else that was providing that same sort of natural regulatory response. So especially when this is connected to culture and community because it's increasing our amount of empathy, which therefore increases our ability to manage our stress response. Mm. All of this ties back together. We know also interesting study to sort of end on that singing and chanting and dancing and moving in a group helps connect us to one another. The last research study we'll talk about is there was a research study done about walking, just walking in sync. And participants who walked in sync with one another were more cooperative up unto the point of even risking losing money for themselves. But walking out of step, they were less cooperative with the people that they were supposed to be synced to. This is actually one of the reasons why the military organizations still use moving and talking in the same rhythm, right? It's helping to connect us as one being. Almost marching in unison, chanting together, it brings together troops, it brings together a cohesive unit. You'll notice this in football teams, in multiple areas of, of adolescence where theater where we have to move and talk in, in a group, what some even, you know, Fortune 500 companies are taking 
speaking to business meetings of like helping us, you know, say the same thing in unison, helping to connect us in that sort of rhythmic chant and how much impact that can have in terms of our connection to one another because it's helping to build not only that regulation, but also that empathy towards one another. It helps us connect to one another and connection increases our amount of empathy. As a drummer and a total band nerd, I can absolutely attest to every single thing that you said. Like I was also in choir and I was also in theater. And honestly, it makes a lot of sense. It's not just that you're in the arts because you enjoy the arts. It's that the arts calls you in. And it's so easy to find your connections Mm -hmm. and find a community in those areas. One of the things that Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey, their shared book together, What Happened to You, will talk about within childhood trauma, some of the historical implications and benefits of society for religious practices. Because religious practices, of course, on a weekly basis, we are singing together. We are sometimes moving together. We are in shared rhythmic patterns with one another and how that can decrease the amount of stress and decrease the amount of impact that some of these negative experiences can have on us, how healthy it can be for us to be connected, to find your family when it is not family, to find your community that you can move in connection with and expand your social network to increase your social capital. So you find more people that you can trust and can connect with. So the question is, how do we build on that past that point? How do we consistently expand on this so it's not even so much as an us versus them, but an us for us? We all do better when we all do better. So absolutely. I think one of the things we saw that was really fascinating in isolation was I remember seeing videos of people in Italy where they were in hard isolation in the beginning of 2020 on their balconies singing with one another. Yeah. Or the amount I saw on social media of people who would see somebody singing in a video, right? She shanties became a big yeah. thing because they're easy to learn. And so you'd have one person sing a she shanty and the next thing you know, you'd have a video of 14 people who'd connected these, these who'd stitched these videos. So there was 14 or 15 or 20 people singing the same she shanty because we felt in isolation, this absolute need to connect one another and music and singing and dancing is a major way in which we do that. We went back to our natural roots. So all of that is great and all of that we need to build on because all of that leads to us being a happier and healthier society with less teen pregnancy, with less drugs and alcohol, with with less cancer, with less diabetes, with less heart disease. All of that leads to a greater economy flourishing, greater artistic development, greater knowledge expansion. Empathy matters because it helps create a better world. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. To learn more, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email or reach out via social media to get started. You can find our information and more at www.brainblownpodcast.com.